born to even see or enter the kingdom of God. So change is possible, but it must be with the Spirit of God, right? So we're going to do a quick review where we left off in John chapter 3. So if you would, open your Bibles or your Bible apps. We're going to go back into John chapter 3, but I'm going to read a little bit of John chapter 3 to kind of catch us up. We're going to do a quick review, then we're going into our text this morning. is going to be John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 this morning. All right? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless... Uh, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said Uh, said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, we're going to get into a little bit more after verse 8, but let's do a quick review, all right? So, we're going to unpack what Jesus says in, in verses 14 through 15, And talk about how the Old Testament speaks of him. But let's look again because Jesus says some things to Nicodemus that we need to understand and review before we go further. Right? So one of those things is being born again means new life. A new life. That's why it's called being born again. Right? One must be spiritually born. A dead person made alive by the power of God. Right? This is not just a new set of clothes. It's a completely new nature. All right, think about it. I know y'all have heard um, the analogy where, you know, a person's drowning in the water and they're flying around and, you know, they're, they're going down one time, okay? They come back, you know, they're going down a second time and then they're going down a third time. This is it, man. They're just like this and they're going down and, and Jesus puts his hand down, you grab his hand, he pulls you out of the water, yay, you're saved, all right? My friends, that is not a biblical analogy. A biblical analogy is you are dead, bloated, stinky, floating on top of the water with the fish nibbling at your toes. Okay? You are dead. And Jesus says, arise. Lazarus, come out. And you are born again. You are resurrected in the power of God. The term for this is, here's my, here's one of my $2 words, $2 theological words for this morning, regeneration. Regeneration. This is the doctrine whereby a person is giving a new heart, the core of a person's being with new desires, new purpose, and new faith, right? It's a new heart and a new faith that are expressed in the positive response to the gospel. So Jesus, so, so Christianity is not just about like improving your old life, right? Man, I'm doing okay. 
not perfect. I think I'm going to add some Christianity to my life, and I'm just going to be better, right? It's not repainting your house. It's not repainting yourself, right? It's not kind of doing some fixing up of your old self. It is new life, new life, all right? That's number one. Number two, being born again is something that is done to you, not something you do for yourself. I mean, let me ask you a question. Did you decide to be born again when you came out of your mother's womb? I don't think so. <laughs> being born again, becoming regenerate, is a supernatural, monergistic work of God. Okay, there's my other $2 theological term for this morning. Monergistic, monergism. It means that the new birth is entirely the work of God through the Holy Spirit. Mono means one. Right? Regeneration, being born again, is entirely a supernatural work of God. I mean, think about it. Just as you in your natural birth, you didn't have a say-so in that. You didn't have a say-so. You didn't contribute anything to your parents coming together, your conception, and your birth. Right? You had nothing to do with any of that. Right? So it is with the new birth as well. And when we read in chapter 3, the Spirit you know, moves where it wishes, it comes and goes, you don't know where it goes. That's what, that's what John was talking about when he was talking about that in verse 8. Being born again is something done to you, not something that you do for yourself. Now, the third thing is, and we saw this in verses 3 and 7, I believe, of John chapter 3, being born again is necessary. Jesus said in verses 3 and 7 that one must be born again. To see the kingdom of God, right? One must be born again or you cannot, not will not, cannot see the kingdom of God. So you must be born again or you aren't even able to enter or see the kingdom of God, right? If one is not born again, then we are blind to the kingdom of God. We're blind to the goodness and the greatness of God, to the blessings that he bestows, to this new birth, right? We're, we're blind to the realities of the gospel, and we're blind to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We may know who Jesus is and all that, but we can't comprehend his goodness and greatness unless we're born again. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, and in Colossians 3 as well, other places, explains that we are spiritually dead. Remember the analogy. We're spiritually dead. We're not like flailing, oh Lord, we're dead, dead, dead. What can a dead person do? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. You know, nothing. Um, we're literally like, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to betray my age and my TV interest here, but the walking dead, right? We're zombies. We're walking around, but we're dead, spiritually dead. We make decisions. We live our lives. We do things at work. We make computers. We fix cars. We build buildings. We do all kinds of stuff, but spiritually, we are dead. And what does dead mean? I like to say dead in the Greek means dead. <laughs> no life, okay? No life, right? So we must be made alive by the Spirit of God. That means, my friends, that you are not a Christian unless you are born again, all right? So being born again is necessary. All right, I think this is number four. Number four, being born again can never be separated from Jesus Christ. 
Remember John chapter 1. John writes, in him was life. Referring to the word who we know is Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus says, again, one of my favorite verses. It is like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. He lays it all down right there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus also says in John's gospel, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. But John also writes that it is the spirit that gives life. John 6, 63. Okay? So how do we reconcile those two? That Jesus says, I'm the life, but Jesus says the spirit gives life, right? So what the spirit does is the spirit connects us to the source of life, who is Jesus Christ. When we're born again, we are in union with Christ, right? That's why Paul says it is no longer I who live, in Galatians 3, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Spirit brings us together when we are born again, and now Christ lives within us, okay? So being born again, lastly, being born again results in visible changes, Okay, John writes in his first letter, 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So Paul, again, in many of his letters, especially in Romans, writes that we must continue to kill sin in our life. And he uses that term kill, mortify, mortification. It means death. We are to kill sin in our lives every day. Because now we have, being born again, now we have the Spirit of God that can enable us, right, to live a good, a good life. Let me just say that, it, live according to Christ. Now, we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, right? I mean, don't think we can be perfect in this life. We can't. We will never be perfect, completely free of sin, until the end when Christ comes back. And then not only do we have a new nature, we have a new body. So then we can be without sin. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, right? We will have new bodies as well as a new life. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> All right, but certainly, sorry, but certainly our lives should exhibit a change in our desires, right? A change in our outlook on life our likes and dislikes, and our relationship toward God and spiritual things. I always like to say, when we are born again, we get new want-tos, right? I no longer want to do this. I now long, I now want to be more like Christ. I want to read the Word. I want to fellowship with other believers. We get new want-tos, okay? So this is what it means to be born again. Now, we learn this. Again, if, if you want to, we have uh, our YouTube channel is at, at sign Summit Community Church 1689 on YouTube. You can see all these, go through those. But now I'm sure the question you're going to, okay, Brett, okay, I get it. I get all the, I get the new birth. I get why it's necessary. I get all this. Okay, I get all that. But how? How? If being born again is necessary, how can I make this happen? Right? What can I do? How, how is it done? I understand all you're saying, but how? I got I to know, right? I have to know. So you're not alone in asking that question, actually. Nicodemus still didn't quite get it, right? Look at your Bibles at verse, uh, John chapter 3, verse 9. 
when he asked Jesus in a somewhat confused manner, how can these things be? Remember, Nicodemus even asked Jesus, I think in all seriousness, remember in verse 4 we just read, how could a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? I mean, Nicodemus didn't quite like, he didn't just get what Jesus was saying. Jesus then marvels at Nicodemus and even challenges him. No, he said, you, are, you don't get these things and you are the teacher of Israel? He didn't say a teacher. He didn't say one of the top. He said the. You are the teacher of Israel and you still don't understand. But then in verse 11, Jesus tells him, your problem is that you have heard our testimony, but there's more, right? I've been, Jesus says, I've been explaining my testimony and my teaching, but you still haven't received it. You haven't received it. Nicodemus is not yet among those who, I think as John writes in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus the new birth in earthly terms, right? You've got to be reborn, but Nicodemus, he can't, he can't get it. He can't get it. So how could he ever believe in heavenly things that Jesus could tell him if he doesn't even understand what he's trying to tell him in earthly things, right? So then Jesus makes a shift in tone and a shift in the content of what he's saying. So he asked the question in verse 12, and then he kind of waves his hands a bit, and he says, you know, what? You, how, how can I explain this? So he says to Nicodemus, he goes, this is the bread advance translation. Dude, look. <laughs> Right, And then he goes on to see, he goes on to set the stage, then what Jesus has come to do. He says, I'm trying to explain this to you. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that, look, you keep asking me to explain this to you, to go deeper in this new birth thing, right? But I can't go any further because you have an unbelieving heart. Your mind cannot comprehend what your heart doesn't believe and receive. So while Jesus can't proceed to tell Nicodemus more, right, from the perspective of, of Jesus as a teacher or a witness, Jesus doesn't give up on Nicodemus, right? Jesus doesn't say, dude, look, come back if and when you, are, you get saved. Come back if and when you experience the new birth. Then I'll explain further. You know, he doesn't say that. Jesus shifts gears and now begins to explain what he is going to do as the son of man. So verse 13 may seem a little unusual. I got to talk about this because it sets the stage for what we're going to talk about in 14 and 15. Verse 13, verse 13, I'm sorry, says this. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And you're like, hey, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> What's Jesus even talking about right there? So in Judaism of Jesus' day, there were many stories particularly of Moses, of saints who had ascended to heaven, received some special spiritual insight into the mind of God and God's ways, and then returned to earth and then tells people about this special knowledge. Right? Okay, now think about this. All right, so anybody ever heard of Jim Jones? <laughs> Back in the 70s, 
Jim Jones. I don't, I don't remember what cult he was then. He claimed to have special knowledge. He was, he was you know, given God. He was given uh, special knowledge by God. And then he came back down to earth to, uh, to share this special knowledge with everybody. Consequently, everybody drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And now they're dead, okay? That happened, what, 40, 50 years ago? Let me ask you this question. Anybody ever heard of, oh, Kenneth Copeland? What about Jesse Duplantis? Okay, those individuals claim to have had an out-of-body experience, taken up into heaven, sat down, had a conversation with Jesus, gained some super insightful spiritual knowledge, then were, then came back down to earth, and they shared this knowledge with everybody else. Okay, but let me tell you what Jesus says, right? What does Jesus say? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus can speak of heavenly things not because he ascended to heaven from an earthly home, got some knowledge, and then came back to earth to tell others, right? Jesus is saying here no one has ascended to heaven got knowledge and come back like this. Nobody. Nobody. Okay? Jesus can do this because why? Because heaven was his home. Jesus is the word of God. He is the son of God. Jesus is God himself. He has this knowledge in the first place and therefore because he is who he says he is, he has the fullest, this fullness of knowledge, is on the earth in, a, in bodily form, taken on the body of a man and now can share the mind of God because he is God, okay? Jesus is the one from heaven, the son of man. And now Jesus is about to tell Nicodemus what he as the son of man came to do. All right, so let's read the next two verses. We're going to go to John 13, I'm sorry, John 3, 14 and 15. We're going to focus on this this morning, all right? So let's read the next two verses. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes, in him, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying there are more obstacles to your entering the kingdom than merely your need to be born again, Nicodemus. Yes, you must be born again. But there's more. Something has to happen to you to remove the wrath of God from you so that he will release the power of the Holy Spirit to cause you to be born again. That's what the Son of Man came to do. Okay? Now you're thinking, okay, this is great, Brett, but what about, what's this whole reference to Moses? What, what the world's John talking about? John's talking about Moses in the wilderness lifting up a serpent. Okay, what's all that about? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so the story is found in Numbers chapter 21. All right? And most people, you know, most people read through the Bible, they get to Numbers, and it's this, the first several chapters of Numbers is a census. You're like, okay, let's skip some of this. Okay, don't skip Numbers. Numbers is a great book. Numbers is a great book. So let's look at Numbers chapter 21, and we're going to see what this is all about. All right? So you can turn to Numbers 21, but I'm going to read it here for you. From Mount Hor, so... So Jesus, remember, so, uh, so I'm sorry, the Israelites, uh, this is after the Exodus, uh, you know, uh, 
God sent Pharaoh all of these plagues. Pharaoh got tired of it, said, y'all get out of my kingdom, right? So now they're, they gathered together. They went through the Red Sea. They're wandering around in the wilderness because Moses did not have faith in, in the Lord and what he was doing. So now he says, you're all going to wander around for 40 years until this generation passes. So they're wandering around in the wilderness, which is basically the Sinai today. Um, so from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, think about this. So they go out in the desert, in, in the wilderness, all right? God provides water and manna, this bread from heaven, every single day, right? God provides all they can eat each and every day. Now, they can't save it for the next day. It goes rotten. And that's, of course, showing the people of Israel that God will take care of your needs each and every day. Okay, you're not going to save anything up because I will care for you each and every day. So the people of Israel, they're out in this wilderness. They got water. They got food. They got food from heaven, people. And they're like, oh, we like this food. We eat the same thing every day. What's going on? Right? I mean, isn't that like, isn't that like us? I mean, you know, we have all that we need and we're just not satisfied. We're not grateful for what we have. Okay. I'm sorry, that's my little two cents. All right, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now think about this. Don't we think all the time that when something bad happens to us, it's like, God, why are you doing this to me? You know, what are you doing? All I want, I mean, look, I said this, and I think mo most of y'all know this. When my older daughter got diabetes, right, at three years old, I was like, God, why are you doing this? I was Captain Dan on the top of the mast of the shrimp boat, if you've seen Forrest Gump, just railing at God, why? You know, don't we do that all the time? But think about what this says, though. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. How are we supposed to react when things happen in our life? Could it be that perhaps the Lord God is trying to teach us a lesson? Not to get angry, but to actually return to him and say, Ooh, Lord, okay, yeah, you're right. I need to change my ways here. Please forgive me. Right? So Moses prayed to the people, prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, now why would Jesus compare himself with a snake, with a serpent? After all, the serpent was in the Garden of Eden, right? Led Adam and Eve astray. Adam and Eve to sin. 
The serpents in the text we just read were literally the wrath of God upon the Israelites for their rejection of God and his good graces and provisions. So why? Why would our Lord Jesus Christ compare himself to a snake? The curse. So first, let's make a few quick observations about the text in Numbers. All right, number one. The serpent was not prevention. The serpent was not prevention. It was not preventative, right? It did not prevent the people from getting bitten, nor did it keep them from getting the poison of the snake bite. Okay? They were bitten. They had the poison in them already. The serpent was for bitten people who would die without divine intervention. Number two, the snakes in the camp were sent by God himself. They were the punishment for the sin. This is the wrath of God upon the people of Israel for their sin of rebellion and ingratitude for the provision of God. So number three, the means God chooses to rescue the people from his own curse is actually a picture of the curse itself. Think about this, right? It was the very serpent that God sent into the camp that then he used to bring about the rescue and restoration and life of the Israelites. The picture of the curse was the cure. And in fact, think about this. We have a couple nurses here. What, what's the symbol of the medical field? Anybody know what the symbol of the medical field is? Right? It's a serpent on a pole. <laughs> wonder where that came from. Right? Even today... That symbol is, it symbolizes a cure, a cure for disease, right? So then number four, all the people of Israel, all the people of Israel have to do in order to be saved from God's wrath is to what? Look at the serpent on the pole. Look. That's all you got to do. Look. Look and believe God will save them. Look at the serpent on the pole. Now, Jesus says in verse 14 that there's a connection between Moses and the serpent, right? And the people and Jesus as the son of man and what he came to do. There's, there's, there's these connections. Jesus said, look, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the son of man be lifted up. Why? So that anybody who's, who looks can have eternal life, right? Remember Jesus himself, when he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, told them and explained to them all that the Old Testament spoke about concerning himself. So don't forsake the Old Testament. Every, the Old Testament is just a picture in various forms of Jesus Christ coming. All right? So what's the connections then between Numbers 21 and Jesus himself? There's a couple. We're going to go through these quickly too. First, Jesus is the Son of Man. Right? That may seem obvious and maybe something that we already know, but let's talk about it. Right? Let's prove it. So in John 9, verse 35, Jesus had just healed a man born blind. He testified about what Jesus had done for him, and then he went off, and then he, you know, he, got, he got interrogated. So then he came back to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him? And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. 
So when Jesus speaks of the Son of Man in the gospel accounts, he is speaking of himself. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man because he's a human. He refers to himself as the Son of God because he is God. Those two things, those, those two phrases are the phrases Jesus refers to himself as. All right. Jesus is the Son of Man. Second, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Just as the serpent was lifted up on a pole for all Israel to see, so must Jesus be lifted up. This term lifted up too occurs four times in the Gospel of John and always, always combines the notions of crucifixion and the cross with the idea of worship and exaltation. Okay, so Jesus' death through one of the worst forms of execution still known to man will actually be the means that will lift up Jesus and this exaltation will draw people to Christ to believe. Jesus draws this together, okay? Third, Jesus is the source of the rescue. Just as the serpent was the source of the rescue, so will Jesus, as the Son of Man, be the source of the rescue. Notice this, Moses, Moses is not the source of the rescue. He lifts up the pole with the serpent. Look at the serpent, Israel. Don't look at me. Don't look at me, he said. Don't look at me. I'm just a dude holding up the pole, okay? Neither is the actual cross the source. How many so-called Christian religions make the actual cross out to be a source of worship? The cross is just the, the vehicle. It's just the implementation, right? It's the man on the cross. Some people are like, you know, look at me. Don't look at the priest. Don't, don't look at me. Don't look at the pastor. I'm not your source. I'm right there with you. I got to look at the source, right? I'm just a messenger. I just bring the word. Don't look at me. Moses, don't look at Moses. Don't look at the cross. Look at Christ on the cross, right? Look at Christ on the cross. In Numbers 21, it was actually God who saves through the means of the serpent, right? And in John, it is God who saves by sending his son, Jesus Christ. If you believe in God, you believe in me also, is what he says, right? So Jesus is the source of the rescue, now, fourth, Jesus becomes the curse, right? In Numbers, it is the serpent that's the curse. God sends these serpents, these snakes. They bite all the people of Israel. A bunch of them die. They repent. Oh, my word, Lord. Nope, nope. We were wrong. We were wrong. Please help us, right? The snakes were killing people. The snake on the pole is a picture of God's curse on the people. So it was with Jesus, Paul actually writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. There's a bunch of pronouns in there, but let me tell you who the pronouns are. For our sake, he, who is he, God made him, who is him, Jesus Christ. For our sake, God made Jesus Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. 
And in Galatians 3.13, he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus became our sin and our curse was laid upon him so that we might be saved from our own sin and curse. My friends, that, that's the gospel right there. That's the great news. The curse is not on us. It was laid on Christ. That's the good news. So finally, Jesus gives life. Just as the serpent restored life to those who were bitten and were going to die, Jesus gives us eternal life. When our sin and God's wrath are taken away, then God is for us. And if God is for us, as Romans says, then who can be against us? So finally, Jesus is the one we look to. Remember in Numbers, all that was required was to look upon the serpent and they would live. Look. As John Newton wrote in his hymn, Amazing Grace, right? What do he say? I once was blind, but now I see. I see. John 1, 14 and 16 says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. My friends, this is it. Our eyes have been opened. We can now see the glory of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. We see his glory on the cross as he's lifted up. And then we're flooded. We're flooded by the Spirit with grace upon grace upon grace. And if you want this new birth, what, all, all this, what do you have to do? Remember we talked, how? Okay, okay, Brett, I get it, but how, how? Help me understand how I get this thing. How can I become right with God? How do I get the new birth? What, what is this? Look. Look upon Jesus. Isaiah 45, 22 says this. Turn and look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Okay, we're going to take communion this morning, but let me close with a story. Okay, as many of you know, I'm a huge fan of Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> Where's Ryan? Okay, Caleb, Caleb, there's a funny story. We had a conference Thursday at Southern Baptist building down there, Jeff City. What? Oh, Ryan, yeah, Ryan busted on me the other day. Yeah, so anyway, so yeah, Ryan and I were both there. And we were in a breakout session, and one of the speakers got, you know, he was about to quote Charles Spurgeon. He goes, who's a fan of Charles Spurgeon? And I, bam, hand went up. I don't think anybody else's hand went up. Caleb was at the back busting up laughing <laughs> because it was typical, right? Nerd alert, okay? Nerd alert. Bam, my hand went up, okay? But I'm a huge admirer of Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist pastor and preacher over in, over in the UK um, in the 1800s. So the story of his conversion is remarkable, right? This guy was raised in a family, a Christian family, read the Bible every day. The man was brilliant. He read all the English Puritans. He read all of... The man could pull a book out... Of, you, you could go to his 10,000-volume library, pull a book out of his library, open it up, start reading something, he could continue to quote. The man was brilliant, okay? God had used him in a mighty way, um, but he was in anguish. Okay, he was in anguish because he wanted to know what it meant to have his sins forgiven. The Spirit had not visited him yet. So I'm going to read a little bit from his autobiography in his own words 
okay, which I highly recommend. This is volume one. There's two volumes here. Um, but he was writing this in the 1800s, but he was, he's writing it about January 6th, 1850. Okay, Spurgeon was not quite 16 years old, all right? So he's walking around. He, he's, in, he's in misery, okay? He's in misery. He says, I was, he goes, I was told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But I did not know what it was to believe on Christ. These good men all preached truth suited to many in their congregation who were spiritually minded people. But what I wanted to know was, how can I get my sins forgiven? How? How can I get my sins forgiven? And they never told me that. He says he went time after time. And I can honestly say that I do not know that I ever went without prayer to God. And I'm sure there was not one or more attentive hearer in myself. And he goes, he just, he was miserable. He goes, I want to go to church. I want to hear how I can get my sins forgiven. How? Nobody ever told him how. So he says this. I sometimes think I have been in darkness and despair until now. Had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a certain place of worship. Now there's a lesson right there. This man gets out and walks to church in a snowstorm. All right. But he blesses God because God sent a snowstorm. <laughs> when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. <laughs> but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry, Spurgeon, man. He just tells it like it is, right? He was obligated to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words correctly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year, hundred thousand a year, whatever, to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it ain't no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look 
unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only primitive Methodists could do, Young man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else, he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could not, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ, and you shall be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered. And now I can say, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, supply, redeeming love had been my theme, and shall be till I die. My friends, this morning, just look. Look unto Jesus on the cross, high and lifted up. There's a song, look unto Jesus, high and lifted, shining in the light of his glory. He is the source of your salvation. He became the curse for us. He became the curse for you and took the wrath of God that was meant for us upon himself so that we might have eternal life. Just look. Look unto Jesus. Let's pray.